Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. Please give a listen to all my new Pet Talk radio shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network, co-hosted by top experts at RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Precious Cat Litter, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Feel Away and Adaptil, and Waruva Pet Foods. Waruva is a privately owned company named after the owner's cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. They are dedicated to the highest quality ingredients in their cans and pouches. People could even eat it because it's all made in a human food facility, so everything in there is good enough for us to eat. All the flavors of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend Brands, are great for finicky cats, especially those you're trying to transition away from dry kibble. I have a wonderful, wonderful day for you today on Dog Talk. I have two brilliant social workers who are going to talk to us about the human-animal bond. Dr. Kirby Wyckoff has been doing some really instrumental work in whether as animals really want to do animal therapy. Maybe they don't. Maybe we got to think about them for a change. And Susan Cohen is a social worker who's been on the show many times talking about her grief counseling. And we're going to talk about the group that she's the head of, Social Workers Advancing the Human-Animal Bond. And Michelle Holla will be here. She wrote a brilliant article about how certain dog breeds have been so degraded by breeding for showing, like the German Shepherd, that they almost don't even resemble dogs anymore. So it's going to be a fun and diverse hour, as always. Dr. Kirby Wyckoff, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to meet you. Thanks, Tracy. I'm really glad to be here today. Well, for somebody for somebody who's done so much work on the issue of assisted therapy with animals, and everyone thinks, oh, it's so good, it's wonderful, it's terrific, we got it for autism, we got it for physical disability, we've got it at a place like Green Chimneys. I've had the folks from Green Chimneys on the show where they have lots of farm animals for these children with emotional problems, and now they're bringing some therapy dogs onto the campus you have begun to look at it from a, a slightly different point of view. Let's talk about that a little because I think it's really innovative. Absolutely. And just quick correct, correction, Susan is a social worker. I am a school psychologist. Uh, my background's a little bit different, but we both work with, with humans in need and, and um, animal-assisted therapy in different ways. So, yeah, I, I've been involved in animal-assisted therapy for some time, but um, began to kind of wonder about whether or not our animal partners were always as interested in the work as we thought they might be. Um, I, I had been doing this work with, with my own dog for quite some time, and, and as I learned more about dogs and about animals, I started to wonder about this, and it's something that um, I really realized that I didn't know enough about. I had a lot of training in, in mental health and children and families, but really didn't know all that I needed to know about the animal end of things. Now, um, your, do- your dog, Sophia, what kind of dog is she or was she? Sophia is, still is, a Bichon Frise. She is now, oh dear, seven. Oh, she's, she's only was, halfway, halfway. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she she's got a long life ahead of her. She was the dog that sort of started it all. 
Yeah, she. I was a, a master's level student uh, up at Columbia University, and I went to a conference and learned about a school psychologist who was working in Chicago in the public schools with her golden retriever doing social skills groups. And I thought, wow, this is really, really interesting. And um, that sort of sparked my interest. I've been an animal person forever, but that sparked my interest in really bridging the gap between what had been previously just personal interest animals and my professional work. And that's how Sophia and I got started while I was in New York doing um, really animal-assisted activities in terms of visiting um, patients on um, a, a unit for terminally ill children up in uh, New York City. And, and it sort of started there and has unfolded since. And, and there's very there's, – I've never heard anyone bring up the point that you bring up. And curious, I must say, that it comes from you – who is really coming at it from the angle of the children. I mean, your main source of yeah. interest and study, and you teach graduate students and students, you're a professor yourself, is the humans. So isn't it curious to me that you would be the one to say, but hang on, is this good for that horse who's doing the equine therapy right. or this dog who's in a cancer ward with right. a lot of grief and a lot of tension and maybe a lot of extremely strange smells? And right. if they pick up lots of things that we kind of only vaguely pick up about death and dying and those sort of things, is it overwhelming and are, is it okay for any and all dogs to be asked to do this? Because I think your point is fantastic. We say, well, we're here to serve. We want to be a volunteer. We want to right. be that, that do-good person. But of yep. course our dog wants to, too. So talk a little uh, bit about the fact that that maybe we need to get their permission. I mean, I'm only kidding. Right. That's not well, so easy to do. But but you're 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 working on a way to decide, or help us decide whether an individual animal does want to be doing this. Is a good fit. Yeah. Yes. And it's really kind of that idea of informed consent. And I have to say, I, I'm not the only one wondering about this. And it was really my curiosity that put me in contact with folks that know far more about the animal end than I do. Uh, been partnering and working with Suzanne Clothier, who's you know, a world-renowned dog trainer, because I yes. really didn't have the answers I needed. I needed help. And it sort of is, from a mental health perspective, I get informed consent before I work with a client. I talk to them about the benefits and risks of therapy. I talk wow. to them about the fact that they have the ability to withdraw from treatment if they want. Our animals did not choose that. We draft them into a role. So I went to graduate school, right, because I wanted to be a, a clinician. Yes. But my dog did not. She did not raise her hand and say, hey, <laughs> I want to be a therapy dog. Sign me up. <laughs> That's right. And this is what I want to do instead of just running in right. the park or even doing some dog activity that involves swimming or something. Exactly, exactly. So through my work with Suzanne, I really um, gained a, a, a better appreciation for the nuances in that conversation around, is this dog a good fit? Why or why not? What are the specific demands of, a, of any given job? So, you know, we have animal-assisted therapy as sort of this big umbrella category, That's but right. underneath that we have, you know, all kinds of different things from working with uh, teenagers to working with toddlers to working with geriatric patients, finding out what the needs of a specific job are, and then what the unique characteristics of any animal are, and then having the conversation about, do these two things fit together? And is this animal a willing participant in the activity? We talk so much about all the benefits to humans. And, of course, I'm coming from the human lens. So That's I also, right. Of course, believe 
so much, and I have participated in seeing the tremendous growth that can happen from humans who experience animal-assisted therapy, but it was a curiosity that led me to these other experts that really had me going, hey, wait a second. I think it's it's a really important topic to bring up, and it means that, that not only the dogs, but the people on both sides of the leash will also have a better experience. If you've joined us late, you are listening to Dog Talk, and I'm talking to Dr. Kirby Wyckoff, who's a social worker for humans who's questioning and wants us all to question, is, is this a job that your dog, or sometimes cat, we've had people on the show that have therapy cats, is this what they really want to be doing? You and Suzanne Clothier, who is a very famous dog trainer, are you coming up with, with your very own kind of assessment tool, yes, so you can figure out any yep. dog, I mean, maybe a dog would be happy in an old age home and miserable around a bunch of children or vice versa. Absolutely, and Suzanne um, has developed a tool that I, I was not a part of the development. Suzanne has developed a tool called the Clothier Animal Response Assessment Tool that she has been using with guide dog schools for quite some time. There's some pretty compelling data that she's been collecting that is in preparation for uh, submission to peer-reviewed journals because it's one of the only tools I think that I found out there that actually holds up to some pretty stringent statistical testing to see if it actually has any predictive or constructive validity. So she has developed that tool and, and she has been uh, training people on it. I'm, I have been trained on it um, you know, at a level one to, to sort of say, how do we look at dogs? I get so many emails from people and phone calls saying, hey, I have this dog or I have this horse who who wants to be a therapy dog and, and they want to do this work. <laughs> and you really have to take a step back and say, you know, and this is what happened to me with Sophia. And to be honest, I didn't even realize it until much later. I so badly wanted to volunteer and so yes. badly wanted to do the work. But it was my desire and my needs and my wants that drove that bus. It was not, you know, until much later that I was able to go, hey, wait a second. Is this what Sophia really wants? Is this in her best interest? And where is that line? Now, you know, for some animals, the conversation is pretty subtle. So Sophia pretty much over time, I realized, had come to say, I don't really like being cuddled by unknown people. She just yes. that's not her thing. She loves doing tricks and loves working. Or with she's groups. a Bichon Frise. I yes. mean, they're, so they're, she, born, has they're a, born circus yes. girls. Entertainers, right. She has a vast repertoire of tricks and she loves sharing them with people. But she didn't really like being snuggled and cuddled and all those things. But it wasn't until later that I really realized that and then was able to say, okay, where can I find a place that she would actually be better suited? And sometimes that means not doing anything else at all. Sometimes it means that actually a career in animal-assisted therapy isn't in this animal's best interest. For her, it meant changing the population. Um, but it's a question I think we have to ask because if we don't, we're putting both our human clients, who I'm obviously concerned about their welfare and well-being, and the animals at risk. Um, we're, bu we're just putting them both at risk. And we hear so many of the feel-good stories about animal-assisted therapy, and I'm a supporter of making sure that people know about those stories. But there is another side of the coin that, to be honest, I just wasn't aware of. It's, you know, it's one. It's, not only were you not aware of it, but those of us that consider ourselves dog-centric, if you will, rather than, you know, yep. people-in-need-centric – 
how many of us, I, I think there, there, there would not be a big show of hands, have ever stopped to say, well, you know, there's some horses and, and, and in some of the, the, you've done some marvelous writing and there will be a link to some articles that, that Dr. Kirby has written and, and you refer to a therapy horse and mm-hmm. everyone, sort of those of us that are, know horses well know, well, there's that big kind of lumbering, cold-blooded horse, draft horse, mm-hmm. and, you know, he's got a big wide back and he's really mellow and cool. So having a kid that has a lot of motor problems or emotional issues on his back with a person leading his head and a person yep. on either side, that'll be fine with our big, you know, our big horse, Toby. Lumbering draft horse, right. Yeah, but it turns out some of those draft horses, like you say in your one of your articles, might be hiding in the back of the pasture. It's, they don't right. like it. Now, right. you know, so then you could say, well, I don't know, the whole issue in society, what's more important, humans or animals? Hey, what's more important, right. this animal or that animal? So if the horse isn't having a great time, do you really care? Because honestly, how many horses love to pull a cart? How many horses even love to jump over jumps? So right. then it becomes the whole ethical consideration of, right. are you using a horse for sport and are you using a dog for sport? Right. Because it's very curious that you should bring this up. There's a, a woman who created something called Canine Water Sports. It's a subdivision, I guess, of dock diving or something. Mm-hmm. And recently wrote to me and said, it really upsets me when people push their dogs to their physical and mental limits to make them run higher, jump faster, go further. And yeah, the dog likes to jump in the water after something, but we push them too far. And where is that line? And I think right. when you talk about ethical considerations, you're talking about a line. Does your dog like it when three people come to dinner? Maybe a lot. Does your dog like going in a, you know, a building with electric doors and a lot of smells of chemicals and wheelchairs and people, you know, crying and the things that happen in hospital wards? Right. I mean, we, we always just say, my, my dog loves people. This will be great. And I think right. you're really saying, which dogs are really comfortable in what situation? Because nobody right. is born as old yeller. You know, we make them right. into these dogs. And I think it, it, it's just a much more subtle conversation than we've yes. maybe ever had before. And yes. I don't think there's any right or wrong. It's not very, it's, to be honest, it's not a black and white conversation. There's That's a whole right. lot of gray there. Sure. And I think the, the, the concern is we at least have to be thinking about these things. If we go about this work oblivious to them, which I'm, again, I was, I, I'm, you know, I'm being really honest. I just didn't know. But if we, if we continue to do that, then we're missing the point that there at least needs to be a conversation. And I can tell you that I have met dogs that actively seek out social interaction. I have a border collie who will literally walk into a room and seek out eye contact. Yes. Anyone that has met this dog knows that she truly enjoys meeting people, you know, which is not what Sophia presents as. And it's just an interesting conversation. And I think the point is that we have to have the conversation. And the breed is irrelevant because if you think about it, you think, well, a border collie is a working right. dog, a herding dog. She's not going to care about people. She wants a herd and she wants a job and we got to keep her busy. And a Bichon right. Frise, these have been bred you know, to be circus dogs and trick dogs yep. and amusing and charming. And, of course, she'll be the life of every party and want to go to three <laughs> cocktail parties a night. Right. And really, each one's an individual. It's irrelevant yeah. what their breed is or if they're a mixed breed, you know, what their size is or their shape is. And I guess also in coming up with this new way of looking at things, you can help people determine by the signs of the dog, yawnings, uh, licking their lips, Mm-hmm. Look at being, you know, the more subtle signs, never mind showing, you know, curling a lip or growling. Right, that. right. But right. maybe, maybe the dog doesn't want to do two hours. Maybe the right. dog's okay at 30 minutes. I know myself, I can go to a museum for 30 minutes. 
Right. Don't ask me to be in that museum for an hour. <laughs> Exactly. That second 30 minutes to me is like a torture chamber. So, yes. you know, and it's just everyone has a different tolerance for whatever the stimulus is. Right. And I think that's that's the point is that we have to ask those questions. And, and, and it's so much more subtle than, yes, a good therapy dog or no, not a good therapy dog. But with what population? For how long? For that's how many right. times a week? That's you right. Know, is, this, is this horse going to be in an equine-assisted psychotherapy program? For how many hours? Um, what else are we doing to provide, um, you know, stress relief and welfare for that yes. horse, for example, if we're going to expect them to work that long? So it's just really about raising awareness and then helping, equipping people with the tools so that they can be informed advocates and stewards for their animals' welfare. Because, again, I chose to be a professional in the mental health field. I chose right. that. I picked right. the schools I wanted to go to. I worked hard to do that, but they didn't choose. Sophia had no choice in that. So I owe it to her to constantly be asking this question, how is this for you? And this is one of the things that I've learned from Suzanne is she calls them the elemental questions. Again, something I had no idea that even existed, but always asking her, hey, how are you doing with this? Is this okay with you? You know, and looking for right. those behavioral indicators to assess, right now I'm okay, and you know what? Right now I'm not okay. And then me actively intervening to come up with a way that can help her feel safe. And to me, it, sometimes people will say, well, isn't therapy supposed to be about the human needs? The way I look at it is this. If I can actually make the therapy about helping the client understand the other needs in the room. That's right. Help that client understand empathy that's right. and insight, then, then that's the point. That's Especially what it's all about. children. Right, Kirby? Absolutely. I mean, what's better to point out to whether it's a three-year-old or a 13-year-old, you know, right now that dog's feeling a little crowded and they find this at Green yep. Chimneys, that the children who have a yep. trouble empathizing or articulating emotions and feelings can see in the, the, the therapy dogs, in their case, dogs that come there to live for a while and then go back to be adopted out. So it's yep. a kind of therapy, but not really. I mean, it's, right. it's purposeful, but it's not in the sense of a therapy dog wearing a therapy dog jacket. In a, right. And they're, they're living there for six weeks. But the right. children are able to empathize and go, oh, yeah, I feel like that sometimes, too. Yep. And I think that that's really valuable. I guess it, as we as we wrap up, the pet partners, which used to be called the Delta Society, those yep. organizations that give people the accreditation to be therapy dogs, mm-hmm. they're, of course, the ones who should be driving this conversation once you give them the tools, Right. I think so. I think so. I think, and they are part of the conversation. I think we can always increase awareness and we can all continue to be part of the growing conversation. But animal assisted therapy in in many ways is cutting edge in terms of the research. You know, practically it's been done for a while. This is part of one of the reasons why I'm I'm in academia, why I moved to academia is so that we could really study this and and think more um, specifically about how does this work? Why does it work? When doesn't it work? So yes. we can make better informed decisions. So it's not just some magic thing. Put any golden retriever right. in a room with a bunch of kids exactly. and they're going to read above their grade level. They all want to no. read to the golden retriever. It just doesn't work like that. No, it, it doesn't. It, it's much more individualized. Well, I think it's terrific yes. that you're doing it. And I think that, that you raising this awareness gives anyone an awareness of, you know, how long will your dog stay in the car comfortably? At what point is it miserable for him that you've brought him along? Or another dog doesn't care how many hours, it's just staying home that would be awful. And the same thing with the dog park. You know, you're there for 15 minutes, is it fun? And now is your dog really not digging it and you're there doing a good deed for your dog? So 
I think this whole awareness that they have a life of their own and an emotional set of their own is is a tremendously valuable awareness tool for all of us and and might encourage some people to try therapy by discovering first what kind really suits their pooch. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree well, with you more. It's wonderful. Dr. Kirby Wyckoff's writing and study is terrific and there will be links to it with the podcast of the show. So anyone who's interested further in this, and I, I can't see how any of us wouldn't be, can enjoy the fruits of your labor and that of Suzanne Clothier as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Wyckoff. Keep up the good work and keep turning out wonderful graduate students who will be thinkers <laughs> like you are. Thanks so oh, thank much. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks. I appreciate it. Have a Take great day. Care. And you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this quick word with Susan Cohen and the human-animal bond and how social workers can advance it. We'll be right back. This show has been supported by Platinum Performance since its first broadcast. Platinum Performance makes comprehensive nutritional supplements which contain nutrients designed to improve overall health at a cellular level, especially joint health and the arthritis that comes with aging. Platinum Performance makes supplements for dogs, cats, horses, and people, too. We are also supported by the pheromone products Feelaway for Cats and Adaptal for Dogs. Pheromones are chemical communicators that are a natural signal of comfort in your pet's brain. Feelaway and Adaptil plug-in diffusers are stress relievers that can help with anxiety or behavior issues and also help adopted pets make the adjustment to their new homes. Veterinarians carry Feelaway, which can reduce problems in a multi-cat household, and they have Adaptil collars, which can help dogs with anxiety from separation, thunderstorms, or travel. I am back with Susan Cohen, who's the head of social workers advancing the human-animal bond, but you will all remember her for the several visits she's made to the show, even going back five years ago. She's the head of the, the grief session at the Animal Medical Center. She's the creator of the idea that people who have lost pets need a group in which to grieve or need it or, or can benefit from it. And Susan, it's wonderful to have you here. I was aware of this organization vaguely, and then I was very aware that you were the head of it, which is not brand new news, but selfishly, having just lost two dogs back to back, I thought, well, who better than Susan to talk to us about what kind of death is a good death for a dog and does that or a cat, and does that make it easier for us? So welcome back to the show. It's wonderful to have you here. It's so good to talk to you again, Tracy, and I'm so sorry that you had to go through a rough time here. I appreciate that. And of course, you know, we we all then think, well, you know, it was bad for me, but it was way worse for Teddy. So for those of you who might have missed a couple of shows, um, the week before my birthday, as it turned out, I've just one of life's little ironies, my youngest Weimaraner, Mr. Healthy, not even eight years old yet, healthy as healthy as can be, went off his feet a bit just didn't seem quite right, didn't want to eat. And in a 48-hour period, I took him to the emergency place where they discovered that he was an acute liver failure. And it was the, and this could happen easily at the animal medical center as well, which is where you, you have your grieving sessions. And well, let me just remind you that I retired from there in 2011. So yeah, so uh, I've been doing uh, independent consulting and lecturing. And is there still a grieving group there? There is a group uh, run, I believe, by a social worker. They don't have their full pet loss program anymore, but they do still have a group, I believe. Oh wow! So there, what you used to do was a great value to the community. If I I remember this in the back of my mind, it was the first Tuesday of every month, and I thought, well, luckily for me, I don't need it in any way. New York City's a long way for me, but. 
the idea, a, a lot of regular vets now, my own vet will sometimes do tea lighting ceremonies. It's not frequent, you know, it's not like mm-hmm. really group therapy. It's more like a group chance to have sentiments. But this yeah. dog got incredibly ill. And with all the fanciest technology and fanciest specialists and fanciest tests, they couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so the last seven days of his life were horrific. He was incredibly ill, hooked up to a bunch of stuff, and one's in that godlike position of, are they going to be able to make him well? Can they make a diagnosis? Is he suffering? How much is he suffering? All these questions that I didn't have a good support system, actually, to give me feedback. And so on my birthday, I had to elect to put him to sleep. And I had brought my older dog, Scooby-Doo, with him, who had basically raised him from the time that he was rehomed to me at seven months old. And do you have a sense in, you know, the work that you've done is with humans, but you're very familiar with dogs and cats as well. Do you, I, I don't know whether I did a disservice in doing that. Is it, do you think there's obviously no generalization, but that I thought maybe it would help the two of them to perk each other up a little. Like we kind of think that about people sometimes, but in fact, seeing another animal very sick near death, does that, make it harder for them? You know, that's, it's a wonderful question, and I, you know, I'm not an animal behavior, so I don't know for sure, but I can tell you that a, a number of clients of mine have uh, brought pets in to say a last goodbye, and sometimes it does perk them up, and have allowed their other pets to see the, the pet after it's gone. Yes. Uh, and some people really swear by that and say they quit uh, the remaining pet keeps quits searching for them, howling, searching outside, you know, whatever. It seems to get what has happened to their friend. Um, I tried it once with my cats. I had one I brought home uh, after she after he had died, and one cat was very curious and sniffed them all over and seemed to get it, and the other one sort of sniffed and ran away. So yes. I suppose it depends on the on the individual animals. But I also think, um, Tracy, that if it helped you be calm, that helps send a message to everybody, this is okay, we're going to get through this, and I think that's better for all the animals that were involved in that last visit. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, because if you're there to say, look, guys, um, see, uh, your older brother's here now and, and you'll be home soon. I mean, I didn't know I was lying because I wanted yeah. that to be the truth. Yeah, it seemed to send that message. But then what happened was, like out of some Greek tragedy, Scooby-Doo, who has horrible arthritis, I mean, so bad that getting up and down has been a torture for him for a number of years, despite every possible medical intervention. Certainly, I thought he would be the one to go first. He never recovered. He had a broken heart. He went into a like complete failure within a day or two of it being clear that Teddy wasn't coming home. He never saw Teddy's body, actually. Mm-hmm. He had to be hooked up on IVs, and then he sort of rallied a bit. But then he stopped eating. He just, he really, you know, we all say they sh- they'll show you with a look in their eyes. He mm-hmm. said, I'm done. I, ca- I mm-hmm. can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And that And that putting him to sleep was... The opposite. It was the perfect kind of in front of the wood stove and the vets came over and the young dog that we'd gotten in between, who was just a young bouncy girl that had been nipping at the back of his heels and kind of annoying him. She Mm -hmm. lay down and with this podcast, I will put a picture of Maisie at only 10 months old, a dog she'd only known two weeks, resting her head on his head and neck while we waited for the vet to come, like comforting Mm -hmm. him. I've never seen Mm -hmm. a dog do that motion with another So I wonder in grieving, 
whether a good death, a peaceful, dignified, calm, well-chosen, almost by the animal death, seems a lot easier to me in terms of grieving than one that has a lot of illness and a lot of suffering and a lot of, oh, my God, I should have known something X days or hours sooner. I think definitely if you, not that any of these are easy, and as you said earlier, sometimes we can fool ourselves into saying, well, I've been through this before, I'm sure I'm going to be fine, and it always hurts. But I think if you have either a person or a pet who's lived a good long life, is you know way up in years, has been sick for a while yes. or declining for yes. a while, your brain at least, I think, begins to adjust. When you have either a sudden catastrophic, say, accident, right. or one of these mysterious diseases where it's hard to figure out what it is, you have to wait a while to see if the medicine's going to work. You don't want yes. your pet to yes. suffer for no reason, but you don't want to give up too early. Right. That's very hard because <clears throat> on top of all of that, as we all well know, you can't ask them. You can't say, That's hey, right. do you want to keep going or not? You know, uh, you put that you really know. well because one of the things that we do in these situations is think, okay, if it was a person, what would they be saying? What would we be asking? And of course, mm-hmm. if it's a person, you try everything under the sun, mm-hmm. unless they're very ancient and you know done a living will and said no extra special mm-hmm. sauce on me. You know, let me go away without too much pain and dignity. But yeah, we do wonder that. But then again, you'd think, well, if if you're feeling really rotten, horrible, what would your answer be? Make yeah, me better? I, Take yeah, me well, out of suffering? There's another uh, issue that comes up for people, I think, and that is obviously we don't want any of our pets to be uncomfortable for two seconds of their life. That's exactly but right. If, if it means if a little bit of discomfort, like they have to go, be in the hospital for a few days and hooked up to IVs, getting some blood work and stuff, you know, not their most fun time, if that will buy them their life yes. or buy them a nice chunk, chunk of time, then you sort of say it's a cost-benefit thing. Yes. yes, there's a cost, not just money, but, you know, discomfort, being away yes. from home. You're, you're traveling in to see them That's versus right. saving their lives. So, you know, and the doctors are in the same position because That's it's right. not that they know the answer and they just don't want to tell you. Right. It takes days to work through all the possible it tests, does. all the possible, to see whether that drug is going to work or whether the pet has maybe some secondary underlying that's right. problem that's making yep. this not work. So obviously, if you knew at the very beginning, we're going to do, you know, spend $5,000 and, and have them in a hospital for 10 days and it's not going to work, you wouldn't do it. But that's not what you know. That's you know, right. That's right. That's, doctors, that's a really good And point. we love them have to make decisions based on imperfect knowledge. We're not gods. We're just human beings doing the best we can. And so... I think in order to have peace with your decision at the end, you want to be able to say, look, I have faith in my doctor. She did the best she could. You know, she ran all the appropriate tests. It just took a while to find whatever this was. And I have to have some faith in myself that I did what I did out of love and with the best intentions and with whatever knowledge I could put together. And if it wasn't perfect, I have to know that we all tried and you know with the best of intentions i'm talking to susan cohen who's the head of social workers advancing the human animal bond about a good death or an imperfect death and how that affects grieving which was a, a big specialty of hers at the animal medical center in in being a grief counselor both personally individually with people as well as running a group and susan 
one of the things you said is what really comes home to me and to any of us, I think, who've had their, their pet in a specialty center. What if you don't think the doctor did a good job? What if you're second guessing this doctor and asking other people and the answers you're getting are not satisfying you, not the, the end medical answer, but the way they're going about it. I think yeah. for me, that became the, the inability to come to peace with it. Because mm-hmm. if you're asking questions, I said, should, is my dog dying? Should I prepare myself and my dog for that possibility? And you just get a wishy-washy answer. Well, how much is he suffering? Well, you know, you can't really say. Well, mm-hmm. I have other doctors saying you should do a biopsy. Oh, it's really risky. But it looks to me like he's kind of dying in front of our eyes. And I think people have this problem where these people are board-certified specialists, and they mm-hmm. mean well. Yeah, but they have different personal styles, or even, or even maybe they're very conservative in their medical style, and you want to be more aggressive because it's either get the information and get them well, or get the information and let them go. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly. that that is a real problem, I think, for people with medical issues as well. I know someone whose husband died of lung cancer. Oh my God, it must be forty years ago. To this day, you just say oncologist, and she's furious because Mm -hmm. she thinks things were not handled correctly with a human husband, you know? And I think that that is really hard. And what kind of advice can you give people ahead of time or or if they happen to be at this very moment in the middle of it? Because that for me was the the bitterest pill to swallow. Yes, it sounds, yes, that's heartbreaking. If you feel that suffering went on too long or that there could have been a different approach that might have changed the outcome. So so obviously one of the first questions you want to ask is, could this actually have gone differently? Is this just my wishing that it would have been different? Or could it actually have had a different outcome? And a lot of times you realize, you know, at that that age, suppose you could have not, maybe in your case, but let's say your pet has an illness and it's an old pet, and you could possibly have overcome whatever the current illness is. But what would you have been left with in the end? You would have still had a 16-year-old cat with an underlying heart condition. Right. you know, so so whether it was this moment or you know three months from now, we probably weren't. But that's going why to it's easy with the old ones. Ultimately, have a different answer, right? But with the old, you, but with those with those old ones, it's why it makes the answer so easy because they already have not a great life. It's already compromised their quality of life. Yeah. So you're even watching them when they're well, thinking, are you, "How long will you be here? Are you okay with being right. here? You know, right. how much right. are you suffering?" It's when I, I had a friend in New York whose animal actually went to the animal specialty center where mm-hmm. the oncologist who's the, the, uh, the co-host of the pet cancer vet mm-hmm. hangs her hat and her husband's the internist. Oh, I know her. Yes. She's wonderful. Sue Ettinger. She's super. Yeah. And she knows you too. Well, all you good folks know each other. And this gal had a, like a six year old English Springer that suddenly got ill and was there for a, probably about as long as Teddy was at this upstate place, uh, eight or 10 days. Mm-hmm. And he died. And for one year, she said she couldn't eat. I mean, she didn't totally waste away, but she had no zest for life. I begged her to go find you. Mm-hmm. But when you're really depressed and freaked out, it's really hard to even ask for help. It's when yeah. they, they're apparently well and something strikes them and all the fancy medicine in the world doesn't make a dent or, or doesn't make a dent in time. It's very hard to, to come to peace with it, but I think your point is really well taken. Would it really have been that different? 
say the doctor had done the biopsy sooner. I mean, in the end, the information came back later that it was some horrible form of cancer that had already gone to his liver and spleen. Oh, you know, but yeah, but the blood yeah. work had shown. You know, it was confusing. And, and it wasn't a clear picture. Yeah, and that's you know, you had a dog who was a trooper and was going to hide his illness from you. Right. So it's not as though you saw stuff and just didn't do anything. Exactly. It just looked like either normal aging or nothing at all. And I think, you know, look, in a, in a perfect world, uh, if you had a choice of two doctors, both of whom were board certified, and you felt a little more comfortable with one than the other, then that would that's the one you should probably be working with. Yes. But... Generally, you know, we're, again, not everybody can do everything. And so you like your particular doctor for, you know, most everything. And so when the crisis comes, you, you kind of have to go with that. But I, I will also say this. It's very hard to absorb everything uh, in a crisis period. You, there's just so much information coming at you. People say things you don't remember yes. that they were said. Yes. And many doctors, and I would say most, care enough about you as their client and, and your pet as their patient to sit down with you afterwards and sit down with the records and go over it again. I've had people say, you know, I just, once he said it, I remembered that he'd said that before. Or I didn't realize that my pet was steadily getting worse right. until I looked at my checkbook and I saw <laughs> this outside sign that I was going more and more often. Yes. But I think if you have questions, it's, it's within your rights to sit down with your doctor when everything's calm and all of the test results have come back and whatever and see if you can great put advice. the picture together. You know, it's great but advice, I, Susan, because this is something that most of us think, well, I never want to see that vet again or go to that place again. And I yeah. did actually sit down with the, the primary vet who isn't my vet, but the primary vet at the regular yeah. animal hospital where I am. And he reached out because I didn't think he had handled well what I had seen as a crisis when he hadn't seen it that way. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you want to talk on the phone? And I said no because Scooby's now apparently ill and dying and then a few weeks went by and I said I would like to talk but I'd like it to be in person and it turned out to be an hour and 40 minutes and it was wow and and you know what your advice is brilliant because I had a chance to do all of my worry and concern and this and that and he hadn't even been the primary doctor anymore this intern Mm -hmm. as far away had been but it, Mm -hmm. it is a chance to say well, you know, I wonder if, if they'd found that cancer sooner. Could we have done steroids sooner? And was it a mistake to do this thing or that thing? And have that conversation. And mm-hmm. it did, and it did put a, it did, you know, put a ribbon on it, you know, in a way. It allowed yeah. me to bury the casket. And, you know, for, for the doctors, too, the doctors get very attached to their yes. clients and yes. to their patients. And they want to learn to look if You're right. if if it should turn out that in retrospect they now wish they had responded faster. At least you, this death has not been in vain. That's right. You know, we all have to learn stuff as we go along. You can't know something ten years before you learn it. So that's right. And we all learn not only from mistakes, but we improve how we do things because mm-hmm. it's what our our goal is. Well, Susan, I think the fact that there are social workers advancing the human-animal bond is a wonderful thing for all of us who are both human and share our lives with animals, and and we're very aware of the bond, and I think that, that your awareness and your respect for it for uh, the whole lifetime of your career has meant really meant a lot to a lot of people and influenced a lot of people in a very positive way. So thank you for spending time with us here again. Thank you for... Some some wonderful words of wisdom that, that I hope aren't helping just me, but like with everything on the show, I hope it can help many other people, either well, directly or indirectly. 
Thank you so much. You know, I, I am a great fan of yours and all the good work you've done for animals. I've learned a lot from your shows. And if anyone is uh, a professional or otherwise interested in the human-animal bond, Social Workers Advancing the Human-Animal Bond has a Facebook page with just oh, that excellent. name. excellent. I will and we have put, a link you know, to We it. post articles and information about our meetings, so anybody who wants to pursue it or just sort of keep up, great you know, meet some other people who are uh, with the same professional interests, we'd be glad to have you. I'll put the link to the Facebook page on the podcast of this show so people can find it very easily. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you. Enjoy and the rest of your peace, day. Tracy. Thank you. I, you've already gotten me a long way there. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. After this quick word, we're going to be right back with Michelle Hollow and some very worrisome things that have been happening with dog breeding. We'll be right back. Support for Dog Talk comes from Precious Cat Litter, which is privately owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who is dedicated to creating litters to appeal to pussycats and protect their health. All the Precious Cat Litters are low dust for the health of all members of the household. Touch of the Outdoors is their newest litter made from field grass that provides environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entices them into the litter box with the natural scent of the great outdoors. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in all their oils. I am back with Michelle Hollow, who has been on the show before talking about her book, which I want to remind you about, The Everything Guide to Working with Animals, but recently wrote an article that really, really picked me up by my bootstraps, and I thought, this woman has really, really hit the nail on the head. Michelle, welcome back to Dog Talk. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. I just want to remind people about your book, and there will will be a link to it with the podcast, The Everything Guide to Working with Animals. I I remember being so impressed at the idea that there could be people that have lost their jobs, that are already retired but want to still do something, kids in high school, people in college, all of whom have no idea how many careers there are that they could have in the animal field. At what point did you realize that you could be the person that could amalgamate all those ideas into one guide? Well, I work, uh, I work, I I am a member of ASJA, American Society of Journalists and Authors, and I found out that um, the people that put together the Everything Guide, that's Adams Media, was looking for a writer. Oh, I'll be darned. When I saw the animals link, I jumped on it. Um, Because that's your specialty. You're the pet columnist for Parade Magazine. Yes, I am. Which is a really big honor. I mean, I think those of us of a certain age know that there was a time, and I don't know now what the circulation of Parade is online, but Parade Magazine was in the Chicago Sun-Times, but I think was the most syndicated Sunday newspaper magazine, like, in the country or something. It was. It is. It, it does get a lot of attention, which is nice. It's, it's very, fantastic. Very nice. Yeah. It's, and, 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 the, and the writing you do and the work you do it has, is substantial. I mean, you have really interesting ideas. You don't just write about dog shampoos. I mean, you really care about things with, that have roots to them. I don't really cover products. That's one area <laughs> I don't do. Um, I write about cats, dogs, health, lifestyle, um, wildlife. I have connections with um, Born Free USA and Best Friends Animal Society. So like, I, I talk to them all the time. Um, also, even the pet shops like, like Pet Petco and PetSmart and PetSmart Charities, um, 
you know, I'm always chatting with them to find out what's going on. And I had been hearing about the dog breeding going on for quite some time. And I usually snub my nose up to going to Westminster. Um, I like, I love dogs. I'm, I have two cats. I love cats. Um, but I am not a fan of dog shows, especially when they encourage something like this extreme dog breeding. It's, it's well, let's, let's just back up for a minute. A lot of sure. people I think are familiar with, or for, they may not have seen it, but they've heard about a documentary that was made a number of years ago, I believe by the BBC. It was certainly shown yes. on the BBC about Crufts, which is the oldest dog show, I think, in the Western world. Westminster is the oldest one in America, but Crufts being England, they've been there longer than us. Yes. And it showed a number of breeds, I believe the Cavalier, King Charles Spaniel, and some others that had been so inbred that these animals had severe, decrippling neurological and other deformities and diseases and problems. And because of it, the BBC did not show public outcry, I guess, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, did not anymore televise the Crufts dog show, which was pretty shocking in a dog centric nation, right? You're absolutely right. So that was, um, I think, the first time that any of us was made aware that the breeding of dogs for showing had created a great deal of suffering for the dogs. Now, I have to tell you myself, I totally embrace dog shows. There's all kinds of organizations that have many aspects to what they do that I'm not wild about all aspects of it. But for the most part, I, I, don't, I don't really have... Uh, a strong knee-jerk reaction against dog showing. And I really did think that this breeding in England came from the fact that they had closed their doors forever to any outside genetic material. So these dogs were deeply inbred. They wouldn't allow any animals in. The quarantine made it almost impossible to bring animals in. Certainly no one was bringing a breeding dog in. But your article in whowhatwhy.com, which, by the way, is a really cool website, I, I saw your byline and I thought, I know this woman from somewhere. And the <laughs> article was like almost a book. It was so brilliant. You took the German Shepherd dog as an example of what has happened to a, a functional, healthy, well-put-together breed. And in breeding it for dog showing has turned it into something aberrational. And you even have a video in there showing, I believe, 1950 to the, to the present. Yeah, I think it's actually a little bit before that, yes. And talk about why the German Shepherd in America, because it hasn't happened, I don't think, so much with the Europeans. They don't have the same fixation on dog shows as we do. They've The dogs, if anyone can remember, what was that dog's name, Mystique or Misty? There was a German Shepherd that won Madison Square Garden, Westminster, maybe eight, ten years ago, something like that. Or anyway, she was, you know, certainly the best of her group. And she was so weird in the way that she ran. She wasn't trotting or cantering or loping or even walking like a dog. This weird thing happened behind like a Pasofino horse, like the front end and the back end were different animals almost. Well, what happens is when these dogs win some, a contest like um, a competition like Westminster, people say, oh, I want a dog like that. And that's the problem is with all this breeding and inbreeding, um, German shepherds, which are prone to hip dysplasia at age 10, 11, maybe 12, are the hip dysplasia is showing up at age three and four, which is a major problem. So it's also the cost, the veterinary expense. Of and the pain. For it. Yes. Oh, yes. Now, I mean, when we say, now let's explain what hip dysplasia is. Hip dysplasia m- means that your hip doesn't bone, your leg bone doesn't stay in the hip socket. 
And they even have hip replacements for dogs at wild expense and extreme pain and suffering for the surgery and the recuperation, which is well, long and painful. The, the words that kept on coming up that shocked me were people were calling some of these inbred German shepherds half frog dogs because of their backs that slope and their legs that spread apart in like a frog. And, and, the, and the way they would move was this weird gliding motion. And anyone who knows horses knows that there are a couple of breeds of horses, the Pasofino, I believe, in particular, that have this motion that's meant to keep, I think they're Venezuelan or Argentinian or something originally, so that the great lord of the manor can ride across many acres of his of his land sure. and not be bounced around in the saddle. And those horses are okay the way they've been bred because it works for their functional reason. But a German shepherd or any dog should be able to trot or canter. And when you go to the show and see this, and, and I'm not against all shows, um, UKC, United Kennel Club, um, the person that the, my key expert source for the article was Wayne Cavanor, who used to be a VP at AKC, American Kennel Club. He now runs, he's the president of UKC, and his concept is the total dog, meaning these dogs are not just pretty, they have to compete. Um, so they are running around the ring. They are moving. They're not just sitting up propped on a stand right. uh, looking pretty. But some of it isn't pretty. And um, actually, I've always been invited to Westminster, and I'm like, no, no, no. And this year, a good friend of mine, she's a dog writer, she said, you've got to come. So she came in from out of town, and I met her, and we walked um, just a small part of the show. And what, what I saw most of, like, I saw people, breeders that love their animals, first of all. Oh, they all, there's no doubt they love them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that goes without saying. A lot of, most these of these are, animals live in their house. Yeah, these are not big, bad people, okay? So um, I just have to get that across. But sure. there are some that, you know, I did see the, the small dogs really got to me. The Dosh hounds, the um, Basset hounds. The Basset hounds, you wrote about that, Michelle. You showed a picture of what a Basset hound looked like when they were originally a true hunting dog. Well, these poor dogs from the show cannot hunt because they can barely bellies, walk. Right, right. Their legs They're, are all distorted and crooked. Their bellies hang to the floor. Their ears are twice the size and length. Almost, mm -hmm. well, yeah, people say, oh, that's so funny and comical. Some of the male dogs, their penis seems to drag on the floor. It's, yeah, we saw a few where they're, I mean, really, I don't know if you could get your finger between the floor and their bellies. I mean, and and is your point that if this is what the show judges at a dog show, if this is what they give an award to, that it changes people's perception of what that breed should look like and, and move like, and therefore it becomes something coveted because it won an award? Well, that's what Wayne Kavanaugh said, because he was a judge. He used to, like for Pekingese, he said, you'd be in the ring and there would be 10 dogs, Pekingese, and they're pretty identical, you can yes. say, okay? Mm -hmm. um, but there would be one with just, we're talking slight exaggeration, okay? Mm -hmm. The nose might be a little narrower and, a, and, the, and more pushed in than the others. Not a, not a whole bunch, but your eye, he said, is going to gravitate toward that one, and that one's going to be the winner. So it's encouraging, and he's teaching judges now, and he says the first two days they hate him. He said that takes, oh, oh, you know, because he's telling them, this is not what you're supposed to do. This is what we're supposed to look for. We want these dogs to breed and, and to breathe. Excuse me. We want them to be able to not, they don't, the winners, the Pekingese um, area, they were on sitting on blocks of ice because with all that long hair and yes, the lights there are very hot. Oh, it's okay. so hot. Oh, when you go there, so, you cannot believe the heat. But if your face, if you had a nose job and it was pushed in yes. and with a very narrow uh, nostril, it's hard to breathe. 
these and also if you look at the peak the, the way we see it now in the show ring when you're watching these shows you know there's two or three of them that are televised the Pekingese it doesn't appear to have legs or even to be walking trotting and it certainly couldn't canter it kind of waddles, waddles. it's mm-hmm. a kind waddles. of rocking waddle it rocks yep. from side to side and everybody laughs and claps and it's wearing fur that is exaggerated to the point of I mean as I understand it was it right that the Pekingese, the royal families of China yes. back in the day, mm-hmm. they were used as foot and hand warmers. They put them in the bed to warm their, their feet or in their lap to warm their hands. I mean, they, they had a function. They were a lap dog mm-hmm. to keep you warm. But I'm sure they didn't need that much fur, and it's not really useful in Manhattan. And mm-hmm. yet that's what that exaggeration is what gets, I guess, gets that approval. I guess – the, if, if you're looking for beauty, it's the even if you look at human models in magazines, you, I guess what what he's saying as a judge is very interesting. That the slight exaggeration, the intensification of some aspect, this in a human, the super long legs, the eyes that are very far set apart, or the mouth that's extremely large, almost like a parody of a human, if you will. But that that's what's used in a fashion magazine because it's what draws the eye. It's, well, that's a, what it's one, an exaggeration of, of our own normal features. Sure, that's exactly what one breeder told me. She said, well, really? we pose, she said, we pose our German shepherds to stand like that. And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration. And she said, well, runway models don't run down. Nobody walks the way a runway model That's walks right. Down the that's aisle. right. And I'm sure that those dogs are trained, most show dogs are trained to stack, as it's called, to stand in that pose for whatever their breed is from the time that they're five, six, seven weeks old. I've seen pose, hilarious, little little puppies are stacked. You know, they learn to stand to do their little model uh-huh. show off, which is fine um, as long as all their body parts seem to work. You look at the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, which now has genetic defects of the heart. Yeah. And now they have uh, this horrible brain problem. We've talked about it on this show before with, with some experts on the, on the topic where their brains are too large for their skull because these skulls have been uh, modified by breeding into a very round, like a human doll shape, not well, the normal shape, right? It's been explained as if you have a size nine foot and try and put it into a size six shoe, you're going to be in a lot of pain. I know I would be. And, I and spoke, that's their brain. Yeah, yeah. And I spoke to Sherry Woodard, who's a animal behaviorist at Best Friends Animal Society, and they do rescue. And one of their dogs was a King Charles Cavalier. And they said, she told me, she said the family was heartbroken about returning, you know, giving up this dog to the shelter. They they tried everything, but they had small kids, and the dog couldn't bear to be touched if they would. It was in you know, so much kids, pain. And they brought in two different trainers. They really worked. And then finally, um, they, they had also taken it to the vet, and they saw that this dog has, you know, that large brain and this small skull, and it was in pain. And so, of course, if you try and pet it, even gently, it hurts. So And, the and, dog, then, yeah. and then what they wind up doing is putting in shunts for the brain and making space and, uh, like, brain surgery. I guess th- this isn't true of every breed, and it's not true of no. all show dogs. But I guess, and your article is marvelous, and I'm going to have a, a link to it and also a Thank link you. to your Parade.com column because it has so many interesting topics all the time. But to look at, at how a breed, we've all seen it from afar. I mean, it's very noticeable with the German Shepherd. It's like, why does that dog kind of run in that weird kind of crawly, humpy way? It's, it's just like not trotting. And you think of a German Shepherd, 
like the Rin Tin Tin days is having a gorgeous trot or even the dogs that are military working dogs that are bred from Germany and bred differently as trotting, beautiful movers. Mm-hmm. You know, they got to jump over walls and, and they really do amazing physical feats. The show dogs, it doesn't look like they can do much of anything. It doesn't look like they'd even get into a car on their own. That's, that's the problem. Whereas at UKC, they can. They can do agility. That is, they're, they're not, they're bred the old-fashioned way. Now, is that true they, of all the breeds that UKC is, is promoting in their dog yeah, shows? Yeah, no, at UKC, they cannot just sit and look pretty. They do have, um, you know, you can enter your dog for that, but it's but it's only part of what they're competing against. They also have to do agility. And so where are these dog shows? Are they going to be on television? They're in, no, they're not. UKC is not as, well, I don't. It doesn't started have the money just around, the backing. Right. Um, they were, they started just around the same time as AKC did. Um, there's obviously some competition between the right, two. Right, right. But um, I just embrace the total dog concept better than, you know, more so than, um just a dog that sits and looks pretty and you can't even if you have a sedate lifestyle where you want to sit and watch tv and you should get a dog that would prefer to do that than a dog that wants to run you want a healthy dog yes and you look at a dog like the clumber spaniel years ago i had a a clumber spaniel breeder on the show and it's a big roly-poly you know affable looks like it would just want to hang out with you at home kind of spaniel not in any way distorted from its hundreds of years of being english and originally Mm -hmm. from breeding because luckily it didn't get so popular but there's pictures of it doing agility so i mean you know even a dog that's happy to lie at home can do physical acts because its parts are put together in a logical functional way well, also, what was very interesting to me was when these changes take place, it doesn't take place immediately. We're talking gradual changes in a dog's appearance over years. But these, you know, like the pushed in face and the poor bulldog, I mean, yes. they have skin problems and heart issues and breathing problems. And I mean, it's, they, it, they're massive now, but they didn't go from a small dog to a massive yes, right. dog, you know, like over a year or so. We're talking decades. Years. It takes right. decades, mm-hmm. but yes. but still pretty fast considering because the the pictures of one beside mm-hmm. the other, it is a, morph, a morphing into a an sure. severe exaggeration of those characteristics, right? Yes, most definitely. Well, I, I we really aren't saying, we aren't saying that dog breeding is bad. We aren't saying dog shows are bad, but we are saying that people need to be held accountable. And you, if you're interested in any breed, you need to take the time to look at what that breed looked like. Find at the library. You know what libraries are, right? Places with books in them. <laughs> Go find an old version of pictures of breeds and see if it looks like what the dogs look like now. And if it doesn't, they may have been breeding towards something which is not healthy or fair to the dog. Um, and, and in any case, we always say, you know, adopt, don't shop. But on the other hand, I say it's fine to get a puppy as long as you go to a responsible breeder who's thinking of the welfare of the dogs as well as the welfare of the people. And Michelle, we've run out of time, but I love your article in Who, What, Why. You. Everyone's going to get to read it. It's really smart. You've interviewed very smart, serious people. It's not just a knee-jerk reaction. It's full of information and, and facts and science, and it's tremendous social social welfare that you're doing. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Great Kate. talking to you. Okay. And thank you all for listening. That was Michelle Hollow, whose article is on Who, What, Why, and she's on Parade.com, and her book, The Everything Guide to Working with Animals, is really swell, and anybody who might want to do something with an animal is going to find out the things that they could do. Thank you all for listening. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again soon. Bye for now. Bye.